Total Skin Nerds is brought to you by SkinFix. We're clean, clinically active, and on a mission to help heal your skin. Welcome to Total Skin Nerds. I'm Amy Risley, the CEO of SkinFix and a first-rate skin nerd myself. On this episode, my guest is Dr. Peter Leo, a Chicago-based and Harvard-trained board-certified dermatologist. He's a professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Northwestern University and co-founder and co-director of the Chicago Integrative Eczema Center. Dr. Leo's passionate area of focus is one that is also a cornerstone of skin fix. I'm talking about eczema. Painful, itchy, dry, inflamed, it's a skin condition that affects hundreds of millions of people around the world, including me. Coming up, Dr. Leo talks about his crusade to treat patients with an innovative and compassionate combination of Eastern and Western medicine. Plus, why he thinks we're living in the golden age of moisturization, and why our skin barriers must not be taken for granted. All that and so much more with one of the world's great eczema resources, Dr. Peter Leo. Stick with me, nerds. Don't go away. So welcome, Dr. Leo, to Total Skin Nerds. We are incredibly honored to have you here. You're one of the world's foremost, if not the world's foremost, experts on eczema, which is a condition that is very near and dear to our hearts here at SkinFix. And uh, we're just so thrilled that you would join us and talk to us. Well, gosh, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. We want to dive right in and ask you Just some very basic questions for our listeners um, to understand uh, what eczema is and how you treat it. And then we'll dive a little deeper and talk about some specific modalities. But first and foremost, what is eczema and how do we know if we have it? Yeah, I think it is a great question. And sometimes I'll give one of the lectures for the medical students and I'll spend an hour up there showing pictures and diagrams and talking about science and I have beads of sweat at the end and someone inevitably raises their hand and says, wait, what is it again? (laughs) Like, because it's slippery, right? It's a complex group of different symptoms that really come together in people a little bit differently sometimes too. But, But broadly speaking, there's two pieces of eczema. There is skin barrier damage. So the skin is supposed to keep the good stuff in and the bad stuff out. But in our eczema patients, it's broken. I often refer to it as leaky skin. And then there's immune overactivity. So there's inflammation in the skin that's probably contributing in part to that skin barrier damage and also makes some of the symptoms like itch and sometimes pain and burning in the skin. And that those two things over time really constitute eczema, which is part of this broad class of other issues that can fit in this eczema umbrella, one of which a little bit more specific is one called atopic dermatitis. Is it the broken or leaky skin barrier that causes the inflammation or does the inflammation cause the leaky skin barrier or do we really know? The answer is yes, right? It's kind of both. And we think <laughs> okay. probably, and there actually are kind of two schools that, you know, of thought on this. Some people think that they call it the outside in, so that stuff from the outside world is triggering this and, and causing it in the first place. And then there's the inside out that people have something internal primarily. But we know no matter where you start, both are going to be involved and they fuel each other. So it's a kind of a chicken and egg problem. For some people, for sure, they are genetically born with damaged skin barrier. In particular, one we found that's kind of exciting about a decade ago is a protein called filaggrin. So if you make abnormal filaggrin, right, then your skin barrier is kind of leaky. And that really would be the closest to a first cause. It's like the reason you have eczema, we think is because you have this leaky skin gene and therefore you then moved on to become sensitized and have inflammation and all these other things. But other people seem to have pretty normal skin barrier when they're young and having an inflammatory issue first. So then then that damages the barrier as a secondary. And again, the cool thing is that no matter where you start, both are involved. So we really need to address both, I think, to get people better. Got it. Now, are there different populations of people that are more prone to eczema or more prone to the genetic deficiency in filaggrin? There definitely are. And when they look at different global populations, there are different mutations that we see, different subtypes. And this is really an exciting area right now. We're all trying to figure out, can we find biomarkers? In other words, molecular signs that can help us know what kind of eczema somebody has. And will it help us not only with giving them a sense of the prognosis, you know, are you going to live with this forever? 
whatsoever? Is this going to bring with it food allergy or asthma? Because a lot of our patients have those comorbidities or concurrent problems. And also eventually when we have some more on our plate, hopefully soon, we're going to be able to say, ah, because you have this deficiency or this issue, we can use this medicine and that's going to suit you the best. And this is this drive towards what they call personalized or precision medicine, where we're going to be able to figure out exactly why you have what you have and hopefully treat it just right. When you talk about skin barrier health, you know, it seems to be really the fundamental, most important thing as a first line of defense in treating eczema is trying to get that leaky barrier to kind of, you know, not be as leaky. And you talk a lot about moisturization and how it's, you know, one of the, the four treatments for eczema. And I loved how you said in something I was listening to, the best moisturizer is the one you use, <laughs> meaning if you do nothing else, be compliant. Um, talk a little bit about how moisturizers are really helpful in treating that barrier topically and, and hopefully helping to mitigate eczema. Well, yes, as you know, moisturizers are super important. And one of the things I like about them is that they're also not medicated. So we can potentially avoid exposing people and largely kids because many of the people that have eczema are kids. We don't want to put them on medicines unless we need to. So if we can use more gentle things, more you know, supportive treatments, we may be able to avoid that for a lot of patients, which is always our goal. Um, sometimes we get, you know, accused of being drug pushers, but really I don't like to, I try to minimize when I can, and, and we're just trying to get people better. So the history of moisturizers is fascinating. And when I was in residency in dermatology, there was a book on the shelf that was, I kid you not, like six inches thick, and it was called moisturization and it was tiny 10 point font. And they were taking through the history of moisturizer research and development, many dead ends in that history where people found stuff that actually made stuff worse. They found things that were irritating. For example, if you put humectant on the skin without an occlusive, you can actually pull water out and cause more harm than good. But now we live in kind of a golden age. I think a lot of the forebears have done the hard work. And to be very frank, you can walk into a drugstore and there's shelves and shelves of moisturizers. And by and large, as long as you pick one that's reputable and ideally designed for sensitive skin, you're actually probably going to do okay. Certainly there are some things we don't want, you know, and there are kind of fancy fragrancy things that have all sorts of other stuff that are more of a cosmetic. That's not what we're talking about here. Those might not be so agreeable, but many of the good brands that are available are quite nice. And so a big part of our problem is finding the one that people will actually use. What feels good on your skin? And I get a lot of difficult patients referred to me. Sometimes they come in and they say, you know, everything burns my skin. Everything feels terrible. And this is really tough, especially when it's a kid, because not only will they not put moisturizer, but they might not even put on a topical medicine. So my favorite trick is I go into my little back storage closet and I make a little palette of different moisturizers. And I put them on a little clean tray and I come in with my, my glove on and I just put a little bit on the back of their hand. I say, how does this one feel? And the best moment is when the little kid says, Ooh, I like that one. That one's good. And like, yes. <laughs> so mom cute. And like, yes. And I'm like, and I give them a little sample, like this one, I think is the good one. You can just tell them, you know, this is the one that you liked in Dr. Leo's office. That one's going to be good. And the truth is there's not, I don't have a secret one for that, but I have a bunch of good ones in my back pocket that I can bring out. So some people, for example, and I'm of this group, I really like the heavier moisturizers. I think when the skin is cracked and damaged, Heavier things that have waxes and dimethicone and petrolatum, those are great because they really protect, they seal things in. Typically the ointment, these heavier ones, also have fewer preservatives and fewer ingredients overall, so a little bit better tolerated. But some patients are like, nah, I'm not putting that on my skin, particularly when it's hot and steamy out. They're like, I just feel like it's boiling, I can't breathe. So then we can use some of the lighter weight creams. And then even very rarely, there are a couple of newer products that are lotion and gel-like that historically we would have said, no way. But now the new technology has allowed for some of these innovations where people can use some of these uh, gel type ones and they say, you know what, it actually is okay. It's not stinging and burning. They're not alcohol containing gels. So it's been amazing to watch the technology keep going up and up and up. You talk a little bit too, in one of the um, National Eczema Association conferences, I was listening to your speech and you talked about the FDA. And what I loved is you said, you know, the FDA is there to protect us and they've done a lot of really great research. And if they monograph or approve an ingredient, it's because there's likely hundreds or thousands of studies to back it up. And not only to back up its efficacy at treating a specific concern, but also the safety. And so at SkinFix, you know, we use primarily in our eczema products, OTC monographed ingredients. We use colloidal oatmeal as a skin protectant. We use sweet almond oil, which is actually monographed by Health Canada as an antipuretic or anti-itch. And we use um, zinc oxide and also 
elantoin as a mild humectant and also a, a keratolytic. Um, but we, we're very, very careful about how we formulate. So we're, we're as natural as we can be, and we use the ingredients that have been approved by the FDA, but we try to avoid a lot of ingredients that could be potentially irritating or that don't have the science to back them up. And um, I just wanted to get your perspective on some of these sort of natural remedies or homeopathic remedies that people use to treat eczema because they really want to avoid steroids. And, you know, what do you see when patients are using some of those products that maybe don't have the science or the efficacy or the safety to back them up? No, it's it's such an interesting point. And, you know, I'm very interested in that area. So I, I spend a lot of time thinking about botanicals and natural approaches to help people. But one of the key pieces you point out is that when something's not regulated, it also opens up the possibility that it's not what they say it is, right? And that's one of our toughest things. For example, there's a bit of a craze right now with cannabinoids, uh, these kind of marijuana derivatives from the, the cannabis plant. And they're very interesting. The science underlying them is actually quite compelling. They may have some anti-itch properties. They may have anti-inflammatory properties. They, they really seem to be quite nice. But the problem is there's a disconnect between knowing what something might do scientifically and then going to the store and buying something if there's no oversight. What if it doesn't have what they say it has? What if it's not been purified correctly? So we take some of these risks when we, especially when we go into new areas that are not as well regulated, and when we go away from things that we know a lot about. Now, sometimes it can be a risk that benefits. People find great products all the time and say, hey, this changed my life. But the internet, of course, we know also falsely magnifies those messages. There might be a thousand people who tried it and got irritated or lost their money on it and they never post. But the one person who may or may not even gotten a free sample or gotten some kind of compensation from a company says, this is the greatest product ever. This cured me for life. You know, So it's really tough to fight that because people read those and they get those impressions over and over and over. All that being said, I do think there are some amazing natural products. I mean, even, even, for example, the almond oil, some of the natural oils that we can bring in can be wonderful. I'm a big proponent of coconut oil. I think that can help some of our patients. Of course, it, like a lot of botanicals, it has a risk of becoming allergic to, to that. You know, we can get allergic to plants and foods, but it is kind of neat. I also really like some of the uh, natural sunflower oil products because sunflower oil seems to have an anti-inflammatory effect and also kind of boosts our natural production of ceramides, those special fats in our skin. But again, everyone's a little bit different and some people are just so sensitive. I try to pick stuff that's very limited in ingredients and others are a little more daring and want to go outside of that. It's probably a process of, of trial and error to some degree, because uh, as you as you point out, somebody might be allergic to pretty much anything, and, and you've got to find the right thing that's going to help and, and not hurt. Um, what I love about you and what I love about your approach is that in one of the um, things that I listened to, you said, you know, I want to believe when there's a new therapy like CBD, cannab cannabinoid, I want to believe that it could work because I really want to find more modalities that can really help treat eczema. And I'm willing to dive in and really try to find sort of, you know, this, put the science behind it. Um, and I love that, that approach. And one of the things that you studied, um, I don't know if it was after or before medical school, was acupuncture. And you talked a little bit about acupressure in one of your lectures as really being helpful in treating, I think, a patient that had serious problems with itch. So talk a little bit about some of those alternative modalities and how you might use them in your practice. And do you use acupuncture in your practice? Yes, I do. And I, I, I'm always looking looking for, again, non-pharmacologic, non-medical ways to help people get better and feel better. And the acupressure study was kind of fun because we knew there was a few studies looking at acupuncture. So the puncture is when you actually use the needle. And in particular, there's one spot on the arm. It's called large intestine 11. It's kind of by the crook of the elbow. And they did this study in patients that have kidney disease. And if your kidneys are not working well, you actually can get incredibly itchy. We call it a metabolic type of itch because your body's not getting rid of the toxins that it's supposed to, and it's imbalanced, and you can get terribly, terribly itchy. And they found that in this group of really tough patients, this acupuncture with a needle worked and helped them a lot. So we tried to do the same thing, but our uh, institutional review board said, no, we don't want needles because um, if they have some infection on their skin, they were worried this is an eczema hotspot is right where we're going to put it in. So like, can you just do it with acupressure? And we said, okay, we'll do acupressure instead of needles, which makes it very low risk. And we had these patients massage that area, that same point called large intestine 11, just three minutes, three times a week. Um, and it was amazing. It really did have a significant effect. Now it was a very small study. It was just a pilot study and a very reasonable thing you could bring up is say, well, did you have a fake 
acupuncture point group or acupressure point group, you know, as they call it a sham point, we did not. So it could have all just been placebo. It could have just been keeping your hands busy. But what, what I countered was that's okay. It didn't cost anything. Uh, it's super duper safe. And if, if it really was just keeping busy and that made patients feel better enough to be statistically significant, I'll take it. Right, right. So I mean, yeah, no one's going to be negatively impacted by rubbing a point on their elbow. That's, that's amazing. Um, there is a study that um, talks about babies, and you referenced it in one of the podcasts I was listening to. It was done by Dr. Simpson and Hannifer. And it's a study that we often uh, mention when we're in Sephora stores training on our products because it's quite compelling. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that study and what the findings were? So this was the prevention study, right? Yes. We're talking about with yes. babies, yes. So Dr. Simpson, yeah, this is his his um, amazing work where they looked, and the idea was if leaky skin is the first step, right, to developing eczema, that that if you could compensate for that really early on, ideally within the first week or two of life, have people put a moisturizer on, could you prevent the development of atopic dermatitis? And it's a wonderful question, and it really takes this theory and puts it to the test in a way, doesn't it? And, and actually they found in that initial work that they did somewhere on the order of 30 to 50% decrease in the number of kids developed eczema than what they predicted kind of given historical norms. So really promising that putting, you know, especially high risk babies, these were babies that were high risk, they had other family members that had other types of allergic diseases, that if we moisturize their skin, it might actually help prevent now, the, the bad news is, or sort of bad news, is that since then, a few different studies have come out that have been a little larger, and they haven't quite validated that. So in fact, they've shown not as much of an effect, which is a little bit disappointing, but we're kind of picking them apart a little bit. They weren't all done quite the same way as Dr. Simpson's study. So we're really hoping to get this done very much like he did it, a high-risk population. Because we think if you just take all comers and you put it on there, it might not do much. You know, We think that you won't see it if there's not a high risk of eczema in the first place. So we really want to get those kids who are at higher risk. And then this also may be that subtype or biomarker question. Maybe the reason that first study worked out is they got a bunch of the kids who really skin defect was their primary problem. Later studies, since we don't know what to look for, they might have gotten sort of unlucky from our standpoint and pick kids where the immune system was the primary problem. So putting on moisturizer in the first few months or first year of life, it didn't do much because that wasn't the primary issue. That was a secondary problem and it wouldn't have protected them in the first place. So I'm not ready to throw out the baby with the bathwater yet. <laughs> Sounds good. And is there a connection between uh, eczema and skin skin uh, sensitive or sorry diet sensitivities? So I um, had eczema as a child, and my daughter had eczema as a child, and we both went gluten free and dairy free. And I believe that it cleared up my eczema. Both of our eczema cleared up and actually helped with our asthma quite a bit as well. Is there a connection in many cases with food allergies and eczema? There definitely is. And it is a complex relationship. And I think you illustrate it well. A lot of patients kind of tell me a similar story. The, the thing I think we know for sure, I think no one would argue, this is not controversial, is just that a lot of kids and adults with eczema have food allergies and that the more severe your skin is, the more likely you are to have food allergies. So the, in the group that's moderate and severe, they have way more. In fact, we was just looking at some data recently from a study, something like two thirds of the patients with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis had verifiable food allergies, like the real deal testing. And when, so enormous number. Now, when we take it to even include things more like food sensitivities, which would be sort of maybe not being allergic to it on a test, not having hives, not swelling, but people will report, boy, I eat this food and I seem to get worse. Um, it's even higher, I'd imagine, because that includes an additional group of people that sort of say, I know the test is negative, but there's something else going on here. And then I put, there's even a third category about foods. And I just think that some foods are pro-inflammatory. So again, no test would pick this up. You're not allergic to it necessarily, but that when you eat this food, it just kind of fuels inflammation. And we see that in other disease states. And it's weird. Sometimes my colleagues will push back on me and be like, come on, this is speculative. I'm like, we talk about this in acne all the time. And acne, I don't think that dairy causes acne, but a lot of my patients, and now there's been a number of reasonably good studies, when you cut dairy out, patients do better with acne. So I think there may be pro-inflammatory foods. They're not allergic to it and they can tolerate it. It's just this matter of it seems to push inflammation one direction or the other. So I think those are the three kind of dietary issues that we're seeing. 
And in your case, it's hard to know. Gluten is a particularly interesting thing because a decent number of patients have true gluten sensitivity where they're actually making antibodies specifically to it. And sometimes that can be inflammatory, but other people just seem to, it has that pro-inflammatory role in their body. So you're not alone. Many people find that when they clean up their diet, things get better. The other confounding issue is that gluten, of course, is in a lot of processed foods, right? So one of the ways when we cut gluten, it's not just like I'm going to stop eating this beautiful fresh home bread that we make every week and everything else stays the same. Almost never. Maybe there are some cases like that. But in my experience, most families, then it's like, okay, I guess we're not having cookies. We're not having cake. We're going to cut back on the pizza. We're not going to have the burgers. And all of a sudden you see this entire category of kind of junky processed food disappear. And people say, see, it was the gluten. And I'm like, hmm, it might've been the gluten, but holy cow, your diet is so much better now. Maybe it's that now you're eating all this other good food and you've cut out so many of the processed foods associated with gluten. And again, I don't mean that this is for everybody, but I think that's why it's so hard to parse all this out because you have all these confounders. Interesting, because those processed foods could be causing the inflammation and just happen to also carry the gluten with them. That's a really interesting point. You know, when I was young and I used to get eczema very badly on my on my calves and the crooks of my knees and the crooks of my elbows in the summertime, my mother, because this was the 70s and we didn't care as much about getting too much sun exposure, she'd say, just go to the beach, you know, get some sun, swim in the salt water. I grew up in California. And I have to say that in the summer, my eczema was really under control. And I know that you often, or you sometimes will treat eczema with phototherapy, which is a much safer way to do it than me laying out in the sun. Um, And you talked a little bit about um, sort of an ionized salt water as well. So is there any validity to to my mom's sort of wives' tale of go to the beach and your eczema will clear up? Absolutely. You know, you're absolutely right. And and so this, the strict name, you know, when we're thinking about phototherapy or light therapy, what you guys were doing, maybe we would even call it clematotherapy because you're not only getting the light, but you're getting the salt water and the sea. And there's even an aspect of probably the emotional state too. And we're in a wonderful place. We relax, we come down, we break those, those different kinds of cycles that we have that are habitual. And I've actually sent some of my patients to get spa therapy in Europe. So France in particular, but a number of European countries it's actually part of their healthcare system. You can go and spend two weeks getting the mineral water soaks, getting some sunshine, all these kinds of things. And it's dramatic. It's so powerful. So I think you're right on. What we do in the office is, is kind of a baby version of that. We use phototherapy, which is sort of filtered UV light it's a little safer than the sun because unfortunately the sun of course has a lot of UVA, which can be damaging over time, especially if we get too much of it. So a little bit of sunlight is probably good, but you know, we don't want to overdo it with the light machine we have. It's filtered in a way to be a lot less dangerous um, and less sort of causing skin cancer, but that can help a lot of people too. But I do think if I had to pick, I'd rather go to the beach and, and hang out too because yeah. you get all the other aspects. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, we've seen, cause we sell a range of eczema products to treat eczema sort of from you know, the head to the feet. And we've seen a huge spike in sales in our eczema line during the last few months during the pandemic. And we also have seen just a a magnitude of questions come in on our customer service um, channels asking about, you know, eczema and eczema products. And, you know, I have to think that a lot of it may be due to our contact, our direct contact with hand sanitizers and Clorox wipes and also potentially all the sanitized sort of particles in our environment. But I also have to imagine that stress and the related sort of sleep deprivation that comes along with it might also be causing the spike uh, amongst our clients and our consumers. Are you seeing the same thing? And do you see direct correlations between stress and sleep deprivation and eczema? Absolutely. It's been crazy. So I think all the things you pointed out, the prolonged stress, the sleep has been really disrupted for a lot of people. And of course, the hand sanitizers and uh, even just washing, all that is brutal. So we're seeing tons and tons of hand dermatitis, even in people who never had it before. But in our patients with existing sensitive skin and, and eczema, man, they are really suffering right now. Okay. And so there are lots of different ways that you can treat eczema. Um, you talk about anti-inflammatories, antibiotics, antipuritics, and moisturization as sort of this, um, you know, uh, different modalities. How do you, when someone, when a patient comes to you, how do you start the approach? Um, Does it sort of depend on what you're seeing in terms of severity and location on the body? Or do you sort of start to treat everyone the same and then kind of sort of edit as you go and iterate as you go? How How do you know which patient needs which therapies? 
I think, yeah, there's a bit of art to it. And part of the things I'm looking at when I meet somebody is the extent, you know, how much is, is involved in their body, the severity. Somebody could come in and they might just be a little pink and dry. Other people come in and they're infected, crusting, oozing, you know, really, really in trouble. Um, the age of the patient, of course, also matters. You know, if they're, if they're a little baby, then that's going to change us a lot than if they're 25 years old. So all these pieces and then the history, how long has it been going on? What have they been using? And one of the things that's important to me too, and part of the reason I like knowing about a lot of different modalities is because sometimes patients come in full of despair and they say, you know, I've tried everything. I've, I've bought every moisturizer from the drugstore. I've tried them all. I have basically a drugstore in my house. Nothing you're going to give me is new. So part of what I pride myself on is being able to say, hmm, let me see if I can delight and surprise you with something you've never heard about before. And I've cultivated over many, many years and working with lots of different traditions too, lots of tricks for my magic, you know, for my magic hat that I can pull out of. Um, and I think that matters. It's, and I don't want to say that flippantly. It's not, it's not that I'm trying to trick somebody or just, you know, surprise them. But I think by showing them that there are other approaches, sometimes that little tiny glimmer of hope is really all that they need. And when they hear something new, when they hear a different approach, different idea, sometimes that galvanizes them in the best possible way that now they're saying, okay, you know what? This is different. I've never heard this before. You're not just writing me Triumphs and Alone in a one pound jar with 11 refills. You actually have a different <laughs> approach, right? So many of my patients are yes. exhausted from that. And, and I think that can get people on the road of getting better. It's really hard to get somebody better if they're not ready because they have to do it. You know, they have to actually put on all the stuff and follow along with me and have to buy into it to a certain degree. Uh, but once they do that, I think we're, we're halfway there or more. Is eczema ultimately curable or will it always be a chronic condition that they've got to sort of get ahead of and, and deal with? I do think that for the majority of patients that I see, and mind you, I'm pretty biased, you know, I'm only referral, so I'm seeing kind of the worst of the worst. But for the patients I see, I think it is more part of them. It is, it is something that they're going to have to work on. That being said, we can get an awful lot of patients, even those who had given up hope, we can get them to a point where they're really not using any medicines. So we can put them, I like to call it a prolonged remission, where they're just like, I'm just really good. I haven't needed anything. I'm cool. You know, that doesn't mean they can go to, you know, Bath and Body Works and put on a fragrancy thing or go to the cologne counter and put on everything. They might not be able to do that ever, but it does mean they can hopefully get back to enjoying their life and do most things. And for a lot of patients who are doing restrictive diets, sometimes they say, you know what, we really thought X, Y, and Z foods were triggering this, but now we're okay. And we're able to eat those again. And I know my, my daughter has some food allergies and they're, you know, it's, it's a big deal. It's hard. And it weighs on her mind a lot as she's getting older. She's always nervous about stuff and it really limits her. So if I can give somebody a chance to not have to worry about even just one thing, even if we say, you know what, maybe the tomatoes, I know you were worried about tomatoes. The allergy test was negative though, but I know you felt like they made you worse. Let's try them again. Now that your skin is better, a lot of patients say, you know what, you're right. When my skin was terrible, it felt like it, it made it worse. But now that I'm stronger, it doesn't bother me. And I call this the threshold phenomenon. It's like when you wake up in a bad mood, the littlest thing can set you off. You know, somebody accidentally bumps you. It's like, what are you doing? Why are you in the way? When you're in a good mood, somebody <laughs> can check you against the wall and you're like, hey, no problem. Have a great day. And I think our skin is like that too. You know, so yeah. it's a tomato or whatever inflammatory food, whatever it may be, may really cause trouble when your skin is in, in the dumps. But when it's better and stronger, it's, it's no big deal. It rolls right off. How important is the psychological component of what you do? I mean, are people coming to see you just really down in the dumps over their skin and how they feel and, you know, the itch and the aggravation and the way it looks? And do you find that you refer a lot of patients to psychotherapy or do you do a lot of sort of in-office psychotherapy yourself? I mean, just to, you know, it's, it's such an emotional thing having a skin concern. It really is. I, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'd ever call it psychotherapy, but I do think that, you know, being there and, and expressing empathy and putting out, putting out your hand to help somebody feel like they're not alone. That's, that is psychotherapy, right? That is a way to support and strengthen somebody. And yes, I do. I actually, there's a couple groups that I refer to and I often kind of couch it in the, the fact that I'm like, this is a burden for anybody, but it's a double burden when you're also suffering with physical stuff. Like the physical brings out mental stuff. And so when patients really feel down or really anxious about their skin, I think they can benefit from talking to somebody. And there are some really cool folks that focus on behavioral issues around skin problems. And I think patients like that, I even have a hypnotherapist that I work with that can be amazing. She can help them kind of do some gentle self-hypnosis, especially when they're feeling really itchy and inflamed or having trouble sleeping. And patients, obviously that it's not 
the secret cure, but they'll say, you know what, that really helps me. That helps me go instead of going to that terrible place where everything's falling apart, I can sometimes ramp it back down before it gets there. So I think it's really powerful, but sometimes it is a hard sell. People think, you know, they don't, I don't want them to think I'm saying they're crazy. I'm just saying that this is a terrible burden on anybody. And it's really important to get some help sometimes to help us get through this together. Yeah, it's okay to not feel okay. You know, (laughs) it's it's all right. And you have every, you know, every right to not feel okay. One of the things that um, I really love about you is that you, I feel like you're on a mission. You know, you're so dedicated and devoted to the treatment of eczema and you seem to kind of turn over every rock, every stone. You want to find new modalities and you just are so open-minded and open-hearted in your sort of pursuit. Of a, of a cure or, or, you know, treatments. And I love that about you. So what turned you on about eczema when you were at medical school and you decided to become a dermatologist? Why this sort of focus and what, what brought you here? Yeah, I think for me, the, the dermatology choice was really to follow some teachers that I adored and respected. When, you know, when you're a medical student, you get like this, this huge cavalcade of lecturers in front of you, and some are amazing and some are sort of mediocre, but the dermatologist that spoke blew my mind. They're, the way that they used words and ideas and the way that they understood the skin really seemed different than any other specialty. And then when I got a little more exposure, part of what I fell in love with is this this idea that we have all of these different treatment modalities. You know, if you're an interventional cardiologist, you can do a lot of stuff. You can go in there and you can zap stuff and you have different pills and things. But in dermatology, it's like multiple dimensions more. We can use lasers. We can use thermal devices. We can use all these topical things. We can use oral medicines. We can use lifestyle change. We have all these different ways to approach stuff. So that kind of really excited me. And then eczema drew me because it's just hard. And I have to say, it was more that I was sort of selected. I didn't select it. It sort of selected me. I just kept getting these tough patients over and over and over that really needed some help and needed a way out. And because I pride myself in as someone who really will keep fighting, I often say like, I'm not going to give up on you. I just need you not to give up on me. And I think that's sort of cultivated that reputation and and little by little got better and better at it. And that was in a time, I think, when it was less interesting. Now, I feel kind of lucky. It kind of went from zero to hero. Now, a lot of companies are interested in it. People are more aware of it. But 15 years ago, it was sort of the backwater of dermatology. Well, thankfully, you did throw your formidable power behind it, which has been great for eczema and great for all of your patients, for sure. Um, What is the biggest challenge in treating eczema? What is the hardest thing to tackle and the the one thing that we don't really have a reliable treatment for in your mind? I still think itch. Itch is really brutal. And I wish we had better direct treatments for itch. And sometimes patients are just suffering so much from it and we're waiting for everything to kick in. Yeah. Yeah. You had mentioned it was the dark side of the eczema mountain in one of your speeches. And I know just growing up with eczema, that itch at night was just brutal. And, you know, just it's so disruptive um, to your quality of life. Well, Dr. Leo, would you describe for us what a sort of worst case scenario eczema uh, patient looks like in terms of what's going on and the symptoms? Absolutely. You know, we know for the mildest patients, you could meet them on the street and wouldn't even know that they had any eczema, right? It might just be more of a dry, sensitive skin. They might only react intermittently. Those can be a little bit under the radar. For the most severe patients that I see, you're often talking much of the body, if not all of the body involved. So sometimes their whole skin surface is bright red. There's often open oozing areas. There's often secondary bacterial infections of crusting all over the place. Most of the time for these more severe patients, it's not just itch anymore. Now it's actual skin pain. And since we've learned to ask that question, I think, again, a few years ago, that was even a little controversial. It'd be like, wait, skin pain? Who's asking that? But then once that got out, people started asking it more and more. Many of my patients say, yes, it actually hurts. It feels like a burn. And some of the patients I see they're so severe that if they're taking the bus or they're taking the subway, everyone backs away. They think they have something terrible because they they look so, so horrible. They look like they've been burned. It's terrible. I mean, as, as you mentioned, you know, we're used to sort of the common eczema that might be in a certain area of the body and you wouldn't necessarily know. But when someone's dealing with an extreme case, it's really affecting all aspects of their life, I imagine. Absolutely. So Dr. Leo, you talked about the fact that when you have eczema, you've got basically a leaky skin barrier, that that brick and mortar that forms our our skin barrier, our epidermis is, is open, is leaky. 
it, can that ultimately lead to other issues? Can that lead to letting sort of viruses or bacteria into the body? And can that also lead to other um, even more severe illnesses? Absolutely. We think it is the gateway for lots of badness. So the first thing is, of course, that when the barrier is weakened or leaky, allergens can come in. So one of the theories now is that the way people become allergic to at least some foods, we don't know if this explains everything, and it may be, again, multifactorial, but some foods seem to become sensitized via the skin. And we call this transcutaneous sensitization. So this is this concept that maybe if we were to protect that skin barrier early on, maybe we could even prevent food allergies, which are pretty terrible. And again, have a lot of their own issues and suffering associated with it. Lots of morbidity. The other thing, of course, is that we have to keep out pathogens. So bacteria, funguses, viruses, all these bad things. And again, when the skin barrier is down, those can take advantage of it. So the most common guy that we see all the time in my clinic is Staph aureus. Staph aureus is a common pathogenic bacteria. Many patients with even a little bit of damage to their skin barrier are colonized by it, meaning it's kind of sitting there. It shouldn't be there, but it's sitting there kind of like one could imagine, um, no, you know, folks who are up to no good standing around in, in a, in a, in a dark Waiting to get into trouble. <laughs> Waiting to get into trouble, right? They haven't yeah. done anything wrong yet, but it's like, hmm, don't you guys have anywhere else to be right now? What are you guys waiting for? Why are you eyeing everyone who walks by? So it kind of, that, that's the first stage. And then of course, if the skin barrier really is damaged, then it can form a true secondary infection, sometimes in the form of impetigo, that honey colored crusting, and sometimes a real deeper infection like cellulitis, or I've even had cases over the years where it actually gets into the bloodstream and they have bacteremia or sepsis. They're quite ill, very scary. Viruses can also do it. And the most common one to take advantage of this is the cold sore virus, herpes simplex virus, and patients can get a condition called uh, eczema herpeticum. And that's when the cold sore virus, which normally might just make a couple of little blisters by your mouth in these patients, because their skin barrier is damaged, it can spread all over. They can get extremely sick. You can even die from the cold sore virus in this context. And it's actually a bit scary. So those patients sometimes will say, you have to go to the hospital. We have to get you intravenous antiviral medicine to kill this thing so it doesn't hurt you. And that's just, you know, some of the stuff that we see. So having a healthy skin barrier that's functioning and not leaky is really critical to your overall health and wellness. And we often think about skincare as an anti-aging vehicle and women start to use skincare maybe in their teens, early 20s. But really, you know, we're not talking about skin barrier health as something that we all should do as part of our sort of daily hygiene. You know, we think about brushing our teeth and wearing our sunscreen, and we learn all these things from an early age, but we don't talk about taking care of the skin barrier from an early age. Um, what do you think that we could be and should be doing um, from, you know, childhood to really look after that barrier and how important it, is it to include a skin barrier regimen as part of our daily hygiene? Gosh, you know, it's so amazing that the barrier works as well as it does. And it's something you're right. We take it for granted, right? You just assume your skin barrier will be great. And I think we are learning more and more that probably, and, and this is still in the hypothesis domain, but we think that a lot of the aspects of modern life might be why we're seeing trouble with the skin barrier. And now we're seeing you know, more eczema than we've ever seen before. Historically, this has been around for quite some time, but never in the numbers that we're seeing. Sometimes you look at these things and since World War II, it's multiple, multiple times more. So clearly it's not just genetic, right? The, the, that explains some of it, but there must be some in, part of the contribution from the environment. So it may have something to do with modern life. Sometimes we think it's our bathing practices that we bathe a lot more than in old times. You know, people probably didn't bathe as much. It may be some of the products we're using on our skin, like particularly harsh soaps and cleansers. They really strip a lot of the natural fats and lipids. So I think part of the problem is we don't exactly know what to teach yet. Uh, and I think that's been a little bit of a, of, a, of a sticking point. We don't know what to say. But I think in general... I do think that high-risk families should try to use the gentlest, gentlest products on the baby's skin uh, and on their own skin to try to use things. I, For example, I'm a big fan of more oil-based cleansers now. I think uh, that's a really nice niche. I believe you guys have one too. That's quite nice. We do. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Foaming yes, oil uh, cleanser. Absolutely. So I think that's a better way for a lot of patients. And I also think that, yes, using a good moisturizer to protect your skin, particularly after bathing, is a really good best practices. And 
again, we don't want people putting unnecessary chemicals. I don't want them exposed to stuff they don't need to be. So that's why I think finding a good high quality moisturizer that feels good and is accessible can really make a big difference. But I'm excited to see as we learn a little bit more and more of these studies come out, maybe we will have a better consensus guideline to say, look, everyone should do X, Y, and Z for their babies. And until then, we're a little bit stuck. And just learn how to put moisturizer on from an early age. Um, that you know, the interesting thing is, is body care is really growing as a category of skincare right now. Certainly at Sephora, it's starting to explode, and I'm so happy about that because we don't often think about, you know, from the neck down. And the face is wonderful, but it's a tiny percentage of our overall skin barrier, and the rest of us, you know, really needs that nurture and care and, and hydration as well. So um, it would be it would be wonderful if we could get uh, barrier health uh, included as part of all of our sort of daily health regimen or hygiene regimen from an early age. You're also trained in acupuncture and how does medical acupuncture sort of factor into the treatment of skin issues and how does it particularly work um, in helping with dermatological skin concerns? I think it really has a role as a nice adjunctive treatment. Very rarely, unfortunately, I wish it could just fix stuff, you know, with just a few needles, but it's generally not very powerful for a lot of my patients, but it's a really nice adjunctive or supportive treatment, particularly for people that have stress-related disease, particularly for people that are having trouble with sleep as well, and itch. Um, all of those things, it can make a, a really big difference over time, but it, it's not a very fast operating treatment, at least in the skin for things like neck pain, muscle pain, back pain, it can be much faster and much more definitive. But in my domain, it's a little bit more of a, of a helper outer, but in that context, it can be wonderful. And it's made the difference for a lot of patients, especially sometimes we have a patient who's debating if they need to go on a more powerful systemic medicine. Sometimes we can take our topicals, add something like acupuncture, acupressure, and they say, okay, we, we got it. I'm okay. Now I didn't need to go to that next level because this little extra piece has now given me what I needed to get to, to the spot that I'm comfortable. Yes. How long is a typical course of acupuncture in order for it to really be effective? One of the hard parts about uh, acupuncture in the U.S. is that we do things a little differently. Um, I learned a Japanese style, and my teacher, Kiko Matsumoto, used to talk about how people could come in, you know, three times a week for an hour treatment, but that's really tough in the States. You know, it often people are driving and parking, and so it often becomes sort of once a week, plus it's a lot more expensive So to do it here. So if, if you're doing it three times a week and it's more accessible, it can be more of a community style and it's very affordable, but here it becomes kind of expensive. So we try to weigh all those pieces and try to find the best balance for patients. But in general, you're talking about several, at least several treatments to even start to see some, some real deep effects. So maybe three to six treatments before you see stuff. And then many patients need to do it on and off for months before they really can do much better, which again, if somebody comes to me and they're miserable, that's why I'm not going to say we're going to start with that. It's not totally fair for, again, for most of my patients, sometimes it can make a big dramatic change. But in my experience, usually I'll start other things first and start that concomitantly. And then slowly that will help build them up to a state where they're better. Do you practice acupuncture in your in your practice currently? I really don't do much anymore. Um, it actually is really tough. Dermatology, as you may know, is pretty fast paced. So to have a room for an hour is tough. So I actually work with some great acupuncturists around the city and get to refer to them, one of whom does a community style acupuncture, which is great. So I'll have five or six patients all together. And by doing that, he can make it extremely affordable and extremely convenient. So I have a lot of patients who like that route. Oh, what a fantastic concept. I love that. I also wanted to ask you a little bit about pH. And one of the National Exam Association presentations, you held up a slide that showed different moisturizers and those that are sort of below the 5.5 pH level that is sort of the skin similar pH and those that are more alkaline. Can you talk a little bit about the thinking on pH levels and um, topical skincare products and how they may or may not affect eczema? Yes, we know that the skin does like to be more acidic, way more acidic than our blood. And this concept is called the acid mantle. If you have a strong acid mantle, you have a better skin barrier. You also keep staph bacteria levels down. If you get more alkaline on your skin, this begins to backfire. A lot of the enzymes start to go crazy. You get skin barrier damage. Staph actually grows. You can see these curves. It's quite impressive. So ideally, we want to try to do things that will support that lower pH, that more acidic pH on the skin. And it is a little tricky because 
we, we looked at in that paper a number of different moisturizers and thought, you know, maybe it would be better to use the more acidic ones. But as we discussed, moisturizers are complex. It's, it's really sort of an emergent property. They have all these pieces together. So while I think it could be a great feature to have some, some sort of an acid in there to bring its pH down a little lower, sometimes that is overshadowed or outweighed by other aspects of the moisturizer. And it's tricky. And some of my favorite ones are more neutral or maybe even a little bit alkaline. So it is a little strange, but I think that would be awesome. And it has fallen out of favor. It was a very hot topic in the 70s and 80s. And I feel like it really is not something that's being published about a lot right now. So I'm kind of hoping it comes back because I think it's important. Interesting. Well, at Sephora, there have been quite a few brands that have really started to talk about the acid mantle and the pH of their products. And in fact, there are a few brands that actually publish the exact pH of each of their moisturizers and cleansers on their product pages. And we get lots of questions from consumers about the pH level of our products. And they seem to understand that you want something more acidic than the skin's sort of natural pH in order to manage some skin concerns. So it would seem that people are starting to become more educated about pH and it's becoming a hot topic again, which, uh, which was really interesting. So when I saw your presentation, I thought, you know, that's, that's kind of cool because we're all getting just more educated now. And we do keep all of our eczema products at about a 4.8 pH. We really are very careful in how we manage those to make sure that they're um, the right acidity uh, to, to, you know, make sure that we're not um, disrupting that acid mantle. So it's great to hear that uh, that you're a believer. Absolutely. Yeah. So Dr. Leo, you talked a little bit about hypnotherapy and, and specifically in helping people manage sort of itch. Um, how can hypnotherapy be helpful and what do you see as sort of the effects of treating a patient with some form of hypnotherapy as an adjunct to other treatments? I think... Since uh, that lecture we talked about where I had those treatment tetrahedron, those four points, I've actually added a fifth. So for my updated lectures, I now show a hand with the five pillars. And the fifth pillar that I added is the psyche. It's the mind-body connection. And I think I was not giving that enough credence and enough focus because there really is an important aspect of the mind on the skin and on our overall health. So this doesn't just mean being depressed or anxious, but it also means very literally when people are under stress, their skin barrier begins to fall apart. And you can actually show this even in healthy volunteers. If we keep you up overnight for a night or two, your skin barriers actually weaken. So this mind-body connection goes that way. But also, of course, we know there's habits and there's these uh, behavioral circuits or cycles that I'll see a lot of times. A lot of my adolescent patients, as soon as they take off their shirt to show me, they start scratching. I don't know if they're even itchy at that exact moment, but that's their thing. And the parents will be like, see, this is what he does every night. Little babies too. Before they go to sleep, they'll have these scratch routines. So Sometimes I find that using something like hypnosis as a way to break those cycles, to help cool anxiety, to help just really uh, get patients focused back on a mindfulness state can be incredibly powerful and incredibly important. So uh, it, again, you don't have to always go see a hypnotherapist. There's even ways to learn on the internet. There's books, but a lot of times I like them to see someone for a visit or two, you know, a handful of visits. It doesn't have to be super expensive. And then many of them will even give you your recording so you can play it back. Um, and I've actually gone. I mean, I've tried it. It's wonderful. And I have, you know, my recording. So if I'm feeling anxious or stressed, I can pop in my, my AirPods and listen and, and bring myself right back to that hypno, hypnotic state, which is similar to meditation, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of a meditative state that helps from the outside. How do you assess whether or not the skin barriers become damaged? How do you look uh, at that? Yeah, great. So there are kind of two major techniques, although there, there are others, of course, that you can use, but the two major ones are, one's called corneometry, and it's a little machine, right, that looks at the hydration state of the stratum corneum, how much water's in there. And the other one is called a TEW, so the transepidermal water loss. The TEWL or toolometer is what the machine sometimes I refer it. And that's actually looking at how much uh, water is coming through the skin. So in, in a, ideally, your skin should be pretty solid against water. It should be blocking water. But if it's broken up, then you'll actually see sort of water vapor coming out of the skin at an alarming rate. And you can actually measure that with a little machine. Now, there's a lot of caveats. It's a little tricky to do, but because it changes even throughout the day sometimes. So but you can get a sense of where things are at. So those are two ways that are commonly uh, used in research studies to get a barrier sense. And you can see changes that quickly as, you know, if you keep someone up 
overnight or you, you sort of put them in a stressful situation for a couple of days, even that will show a, a change in the skin barrier health. It sure does. Is there an eczema cure in sight, in your opinion? I wish. I don't think we have the C word yet. The cure word is a big word because we still don't exactly know what it is. And I think that's hard. And we don't even think, as we said, we don't even think it's one thing. So you know, I think we have better treatments than ever before. The past 50 years, we've had such little activity in eczema. There's been such, such limited innovation. And now we're seeing this explosion of new ideas. So I think this is the beginning. I think this is the decade of eczema we're about to enter. We're going to see all sorts of new ideas, new products. And one of the things we do is when we get new drugs to treat something, we learn about the disease because we can say, ah, look, it didn't help this person. It did help this person. And the fancy term for that is a diagnosis ex juventibus. We can understand it better by what helped. And as we get these very targeted new medicines, I think we're going to learn more about it than ever before. And I am hopeful that a cure will be in the books at some point. I just don't know when. And right now, I'm just I'm grateful to have some treatment options to get people better and out of misery. I'm excited for that cure as well. And it's it's great that there's so much more excitement and energy being put into eczema. As you said, this is the decade of eczema. So that's fantastic for all of us out there that suffer. Dr. Leo, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And I really appreciate all of the incredible information that you've given to us and our listeners about eczema. Appreciate all the work you're doing for the cause. And thank you for being here on Total Skin Nerds today with us. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. To learn more about Dr. Leo's work, visit his websites, www.dermchicago.com and www.chicagoeczema.com. I learned so much from talking with Dr. Leo. He combines deep scholarship with a devoted clinical practice and a level of kindness you can feel. Here are three things I can't stop thinking about. One, pH as a skincare metric is a fascinating concept and a key component of skin barrier health. Dr. Leo is a big believer that using products with the right pH is critical to managing eczema, and so am I. I'm fascinated by emerging research about acidity and alkalinity relative to skin health, and I can't wait to dig in and learn more. Two, Hypnotherapy, acupuncture, and acupressure are all very much of interest to me, and I love Dr. Leo's exploration of these different modalities to treat eczema. Three, Dr. Leo spoke about finding treatments that would surprise and delight his patients, especially by tapping into different traditions. I'm inspired by his openness and the way he's seeking to create harmony with medicine. But this isn't only inspiring from a medical point of view. Wanting to care for people by introducing a sense of surprise and delight is just an admirable daily practice no matter what you do for a living. I'll be thinking about how to implement these gestures more in my own life. Thank you for listening to this episode of Total Skin Nerds. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes and Spotify. Total Skin Nerds is produced by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn for Freetime Media. Our theme music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Catherine Spears, Kara Canning, Ginny Chen, Jane Meredith, and Megan Collins. And I'm your host, Amy Risley. Till next time, nerds. Total Skin Nerds is brought to you by SkinFix. We're clean, clinically active, and on a mission to help heal your skin. Total Skin Nerds is a podcast created to educate. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice. If you are looking for help with a skin concern, we would encourage you to seek the advice of a board-certified dermatologist, functional medical practitioner, or other qualified healthcare provider. You can find a registry of board-certified dermatologists in the U.S. at find dash-a-derm.aad.org and in Canada at dermatology.ca. For a registry of qualified functional medical practitioners, you can visit ifm.org. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We hope that you enjoy listening to Total Skin Nerds as much as we enjoy making it.